This is CSAP's Science and Policy Podcast from the University of Cambridge, where we're bringing you the latest evidence and expertise to improve public policymaking. What impacts are people having on remote environments? Advances in technology and engineering have given us the ability to extract minerals deep from the seabed, fish in the freezing waters around Antarctica, and put thousands of satellites into orbit. As the human exploitation of these spaces increases, so too do the negative consequences of pollution, habitat loss, and other forms of environmental degradation. The tourism industry in the Antarctic is expanding, with over 50,000 guests visiting in 2018. There are now 70 research stations, with international scientists regularly travelling to and from the continent. What impacts do the regular exchange of people and equipment have on native wildlife and ecosystems? What invasive species are introduced by drilling deep into ancient Antarctic lakes? And how should we balance the pursuit of scientific understanding with the possible consequences of our disturbing a pristine environment? There are currently countless man-made objects in orbits, ranging from microscopic fragments of metal and paint to satellites the size of buses. Every year we send increasing numbers of communication and observation satellites into the near-Earth space environment, and much of our lives on Earth now depends on a functional space-based infrastructure. With orbital bodies travelling at kilometres per second, even tiny debris has the potential to cause catastrophic damage in a collision. Is disaster inevitable? What potential solutions are there for reducing the likelihood of collisions? And how can the increasingly privatised space sector cooperate to ensure precautionary behaviour? We can now prospect for and mine metal and mineral deposits from the deep seabed. What unintended consequences could doing so have on the marine environment? How can deep sea mining be regulated? And is it even financially viable? There are also questions of sovereignty, cultural heritage and accountability. It's crucial that all stakeholders are represented in these discussions and that exploitative historical legacies are challenged. Within this podcast episode, we will consider these questions and more through the lenses of science and policy. We'll aim to determine the most pressing near-term and future challenges regarding exploitation and degradation of the deep ocean, Antarctic and space environments. Hi, I'm Rob Doubleday, host of CSAP's Science and Policy podcast. You've just heard from PhD student and CSAP policy intern, Anthony Lindley. In this week's episode of our series on deep ocean space and Antarctica, we're exploring the risks and policy questions posed by ways humans are interacting with and exploiting these environments. Throughout this episode, we'll be exploring the risks and questions involved in deep sea mining and how scientists are managing the delicate balance between studying and protecting fragile Antarctic environments, and also the growing problem of space debris. Today, we're joined by political geographer, Dr. John Childs from the University of Lancaster, Dr. Kevin Hughes, who's an environmental scientist at the British Antarctic Survey, and technology policy researcher, Dr. Nikita Chu, who's a specialist in robotic and outer space governance. Turning first to you, John, could you tell us a bit about the current state of deep sea mining? First thing to say probably is that the fact that oceans and ocean space in general have become an object of political inquiry, that's a fairly recent thing. I mean, there's been a long history of oceans being marginalised from political thought. 
you know, there's been a tendency to see it as separate from lands, as apolitical, you know, that it's lands where sort of all the interesting politics happens. And you know, where oceans have been considered, they've tended to be seen as, you know, means of traversal, um, something that's kind of passed over, you know, to kind of reach land masses and, you know, thus explore where all the interesting politics happens. And that's a consequence, really, of a centuries-old historical bias, which is you know, separated nature from culture. And so, you know, this this sense then that the ocean is even interesting to look at politically is, is a very recent thing. What's driven that and what are sort of markers of, of that? I mean, is, is it as simple as technologies enabling exploration and exploitation or are there other things going on as well? I think there's a combination of different factors. You know, we've got a change in the public consciousness. Obviously, there's some, something of a, a kind of blue planet effect where you have kind of increased media exposure around how oceans are important to the functioning of the Earth system and ultimately, of course, to humanity. You've got an increase in scholarship, which is bringing to um, fore, you know, increased understanding. So we know what the issues are now better than we did before. But also, yeah, I mean, absolutely, there's a question for technology here. It's important to say that the deep ocean, the deep seabed has been, in technological terms, known about for a while. You know, there's, there's quite an interesting history around the military, you know, having quite an advanced sense of of some of the things that deep ocean environments look like. But yeah, certainly in recent times, yeah, you've got the emergence of technology from a science perspective, but also, you know, a very much an increase in that kind of profit driving maxim. You've got questions of what progress looks like. Um, and of course, it's historically been framed in terms of economic progress, most recently sustainable development. So now we've got this, you know, sort of emergent narrative of the blue economy, which has been around for well, at least a decade now, which is basically looking to find ways of making money out of the ocean, albeit with a nod towards sort of its sustainable use, although you could be critical of that. So there's, there's a whole series of different forces coming together. And I think what's interesting, particularly about deep sea environments is that we've only gone so far with it you know i think when we think about the ocean we're still talking about kind of the, the place where all the interesting faunas sort of swimming around and doing stuff that we can see even even something like blue planet effects you know where you have an increased consciousness uh, uh, in public terms of, of some of the questions you know it's still focused on pretty fish swimming around they're less interested in what bacteria are doing you know five kilometers under the ocean and why that should matter for example so on this particular question of resource extraction and mining, yeah. obviously there's one set of questions, which is, is, is it feasible to extract resources from the deep sea? But then, as you said, it's whether it's profitable or not. You know, are there examples now of deep sea mining actually going on in practice? Yes. So what you've got is there's around 30 exploration contracts. Uh, well, there is exactly 30, I think, the last time I checked. Uh, exploration contracts given out by uh, the major regulator, the International Seabed Authority, for mineral exploration of deep seabed in area in the area. So that's that's areas outside of the exclusive economic zones um, of countries. And that, that makes up over half of the world's oceans in aerial terms. So, you know, there's about 30, 30 different uh, state-backed entities that are, are actively looking for minerals in those kinds of areas. Along, alongside that, you've got private companies that are also looking to extract in different places, and some of those are in 
are in the exclusive economic zones of individual countries. And where that's the case, then you've got new actors. You've got this negotiation happening between an individual nation state and, and a corporation. Now, for those companies, you know, there's the one that I've studied over a few years in, in some detail was the world's first kind of commercial license given out for extraction, which was in Papua New Guinea. But the thing never took off. Um, you know, the company went bust after, you know, best part of a decade trying to get going. And that was down to a number of things. Basically, investors got cold feet, put off by some of the environmental consequences which were being thrown around. But there was also a cost question there, you know, could it could it be profitable? And, you know, there was a lot of pressure from uh, civil society on that project as well, in terms of some of the human dimensions of, of, of extraction, which weren't picked up at the time. What were the particular resources that that contract was going after? And, and what, if you look across the 30 that, that we know about, that you say yeah. are in international waters, what's the sort of promise of, of these exploration efforts? Yeah, I mean, it's a very good question because, you know, the, the sorts of metals, minerals, elements that are being looked for massively change. They've all got their own, they've all got their own politics associated with them. So in Papua New Guinea, it was uh, gold and copper. So, you know, you're talking there about, um, you know, more or less conventional metals, things that we've mined on land, you know, for, for a long time now. The, one of the kind of the major arguments that Nautilus Minerals, the company that wanted to mine in Papua New Guinea, made was that, well, you know, you're saying you want all of these uh, electric cars, for example, in a kind of a green future. Where are you going to get the copper from to build them? So you need, you need new sources. So that was one of the arguments they made there. I mean, when you look at international waters, though, it's different. You get uh, different deposit types often. So polymetallic sulfides, one of the big ones, but there's others as well. And Yes, there is still uh, those kind of conventional metals being searched for, but there's also uh, quite a rise in look uh, in looking for rare earth elements. So things like tellurium, for example, um, has been kind of talked up. That's an important component of photovoltaics. There's active searching going on for that, but other other rare earth elements as well, all of which seem to be crucial for an expanding green energy infrastructure. And is there any kind of settled view on what the kind of environmental damage of deep sea mineral extraction is? Is it very kind of context dependent on the particular place that these minerals exist or the particular methods for extracting them? Or, or is there starting to evolve a, a kind of set of concerns that are, are generally thought of when weighing up the benefits or and problems of deep sea mining? It does change depending on lots of different factors. Depth is a big one. I mean, there's there's differences in how you even define deep sea mining, for example. You know, when does the deep start? So some people would say that, you know, trawling the seabed, you know, even at 200 metres depth sort of thing could be considered that some people have a problem with that. So things like phosphate mining, for example, and all phosphate mining can be seen as, you know, example, that has its own issues. But you compare that to something at five, six, seven kilometres depth, and it's, it's slightly different. I mean, I guess the key kind of environmental consequences people are worried about is obviously the disturbance of uh, the habitats of benthic organisms. So, you know, you're, you're, you're obviously digging up the seabed, that's going to disturb, necessarily all mining does disturb those habitats. Uh, sediment plumes that are created through mining is a really big one. I think a lot of people kind of very concerned about that and how they, again, interfere with the behaviour and ultimately uh, health of benthic 
uh, ecosystems. And then, and, you know, sound, sound pollution is another one. You know, but all of these questions do change depending on the depth you're working at because the technology used to get minerals from, you know, very deep uh, on the seabed up to the surface uh, and then across the land, you know, it changes. And, and I think it's important when we think about deep sea mining, a lot of the consequences often we tend to think of like the deep seabed itself. Yes. What's happening on the deep seabed at the point of extraction? But if one thing should be made clear, resource extraction is never just about the politics of it. It's never just about the point at which the metal or mineral comes out the ground. You know, there's a huge long supply chain which is pumping that through. You know, a huge water column. You're taking across vast amounts of oceanic space on a boat where it's processed potentially on land with its own particular regulations and uh, environmental questions. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a huge, long area that that metal and mineral is, is travelling. Interesting, you mentioned about the, the, the Nautilus case in Papua New Guinea, that yeah. it was sort of the, some of the human questions that, that came to the fore that perhaps weren't anticipated by, by the main players at the time. What sort of human questions were you talking about? Yeah, I mean, well, there's some obvious ones. So, you know, things in terms of concern by communities that uh, deep sea mining was going to affect their their livelihoods, especially around fishing, things like that, which I kind of anticipated. I mean, I spent, you know, two or three years out out there on and off um, sort of speaking to people. And actually the biggest, and I I did lots of different things. One of them was a problem ranking kind of exercise. What do you consider to be the the biggest threat? essentially thrown out by deep sea mining and the number one thing that came out wasn't really actually anything to do with livelihoods uh, in an economic sense it was to do with the um, disturbance of their spiritual belief system and their cosmology so in particular they have uh, believe these particular communities have belief in so-called masalai which are kind of spiritual beings which live at the bottom of the ocean uh, basically but not just they don't just stay there they kind of move throughout their cosmology and they were massively concerned it came out the top rating on every single kind of way of measuring it that disturbing these these spirits these masalai wasn't just bad news for how they think about the planet but it was bad news because there would be consequences you know that these that these spirits basically would get really angry and you know one of the consequences for this i mean just in sort of slightly philosophical terms is that for them you know there's this sense that 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 spirit or that belief kind of is transported in the in the metal or mineral that is being dug up. So then, when they look at a picture of a wind turbine, in that wind turbine is is you know basically their some of their some of their kind of belief system. So it's kind of a cutting through really of, of the fabric of, of what they believe. So it's it's pretty foundational. And it's not, to be honest, it's not a sort of a very specific, although it is a specific example, it's not something which we should just leave there because deep sea mining is happening or it's being targeted in different parts of the world. So South Taranaki in New Zealand, um, you know, you've seen Maoris getting, you know, having a really sort of prominent uh, say against it. Again, questions of customary land rights there coming to the fore. And so when you look in sort of all of these kind of communities, they're important questions. You know, they're, they're just unavoidable. I mean, it also has echoes of the controversy over the Brent Spa, the decommissioning of Brent Spa in the 1990s in the North Sea. But yeah, I mean, I think it's just there is just a broader point there, again, that, you know, when we think about the deep ocean, especially something is in, a, in an extreme environment like that, 
you know, it is te- it's very tempting to think it as a place which doesn't have human consequences directly, but of course it does. My, my understanding of the Brent Spire controversy was that there, there was a sort of in, you know, environmental risk assessment done that said it would the, 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 the least damage environmentally would be done by disposing of this oil storage in the relatively deep sea. But that was not, ex, you know, but, but that, the public controversy that that raised was about the idea of is it right to to pollute what people think of as a sort of pristine, un, undisturbed environment? Again, with, with kind of environmental impact assessments and, and similar kind of mechanisms, I mean, you've always got questions of power, you know, there. There's always questions of what is said, what isn't said, who is included in that decision making process, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, these aren't sort of objective statements of how it is. And there's echoes in the world of the deep sea again. I mean, there's there's a whole, it's a slightly different thing, but there's deep sea tailings disposal, which is again basically landed tailings. So the consequences of land mining, uh, terrestrial mining, being pumped into the deep ocean because again it's sort of seen as out of out of sight, out of mind, and you know that's an extremely controversial practice as well. Final sort of question: thinking particularly about the international waters, and 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 the um, you talked about these thirty kind of licenses is it license i mean what what is the kind of authority by which this international body grants permission for this these 30 kind of mineral extraction explorations studies yeah so they're they're called exploration contracts and they're issued by an organization called the international seabed authority which is an arm basically as a regulatory function of um unclos the united nations convention on the law of the sea that was created quite a time ago, and and they're basically there to uh, you know regulate basically who does and who doesn't use that area as it's called, and you know how is it used. So there's you know there's guiding principles. We have the guiding principle of the common heritage of mankind, for example, for that. But you know right there, there's loads of interesting questions. You know it's supposed to be about kind of holding in trust for future generations this kind of cultural and natural heritage. But at the same time, there's a lot of assumptions in in that. You know. Okay, so there's there's a feminist critique of that for a start. You know, the man, the mankind. There's a there's a human bias towards that. So you, if you call it humankind, uh, then you're writing out, you know, spirits, for example, as I mentioned earlier. But you're you're writing out kind of you know, agency for animal life, for example, bacteria. You know, for all these different interesting political actors in their own right. And you know, you're not doing anything to engage with the fact that, as we know, human humankind has been very much an uneven uh, object of analysis. I mean, just look at the history of oceans, your sort of black geographies, for example, being completely different to, say, you know, Eurocentric or kind of US-centric histories of of the ocean. You know, slavery being a very obvious example of how the ocean is politically just different, you know. So something like the mankind's uh, designation doesn't capture that enormous diversity and there's questions there about who should benefit from the deep deep sea mining for example you know who should benefit that let alone who should bear the costs of that Um, you know given the fact that we've had this very uneven distribution of benefits and costs um, historically yeah what what do you think you know is, is likely to emerge as the sort of some of the most pressing issues that that are considered when thinking about exploitation of the deep sea in these international waters. Do you, do you think that, I mean, you've talked about the critiques um, of, of the current regime. 
but obviously the current regime does offer some sort of, if you like, oversight or protection. How do you anticipate these debates evolving over the next decade or so? Well, I mean, right now, the International Seabed Authority is drawing up um, exploitation uh, codes, basically. So, you know, everything's pointing towards a shift away from exploration to exploitation. That's why there's so much kind of pushback, I guess, from critical communities, because, you know, that's that's obviously a scary thing. It's not like terrestrial mining where the horse is already bolted, essentially. You know, there's, there's an opportunity here to kind of know more about the kind of environments that we're engaging with before, you know, these kinds of big decisions are taken. Um, if exploitation starts to happen on an industrial scale and we get more of it, there's, I mean, there's loads of loads of questions. And, and there is important questions about the trade-offs required for an expanding green energy infrastructure, for example. You know, if you want, if you want more wind turbines, if you want more photovoltaic panels, if you want more electric cars, you know, where are you going to get the metals, minerals from? Uh, and so there's there's a compelling argument on, you know, on, on the one hand that that, you know, the deep sea can provide some of that. But then there's also, you know, hugely compelling questions that go against that about what does a fair, just way of doing that look like? Yeah, how should it be regulated? Should it be in the hands of an authority set up in a particular way at a particular time? And also, you know, as I said earlier, and I'll keep coming back to, you know, how do we try and factor in, um, you know, a range of belief systems which don't necessarily map onto this dominant one, which we've seen historically. Thank you, John. That was great. Now, uh, Kevin, thinking about Antarctica, what's the kind of current state of the environment in Antarctica? How, how how do we think about the, as I say, the state of the environment? Is is it in a sort of pristine mm. state? Is it being impacted by humans in various ways? So it really depends on where you are. You know, Antarctica has an area of fourteen million kilometers squared, and ninety nine point seven percent of that is snow and ice. And only that 0.3% is ice-free. And actually, the ice-free ground that's near the coast is where you find the great majority of the Antarctic research stations because of ease of access, et cetera. And it's those locations that have been predominantly um, impacted by human activities over the last, well, since since the middle of the 20th century when, when research stations started to be established. Unhelpfully, that strip of land that's near the coast, which is only about 6,000 kilometers squared in area, that's about half the size of Yorkshire, that contains the vast majority of the plant life penguin colonies, the seal hole outsides, the, the, the nesting sites of various bird species. And that inevitably leads to some sort of conflict and impact between both sort of the human activity in the region and the, and the, and the, and the native species. So that, that is problematic. In the marine environment, um, we have seen exploitation of the Firstly, the seals back 200 years ago when sealing started in Antarctica, but also whales have been um, severely impacted by whaling over the years. They've taken out fin fish, and now we're um, looking at extracting krill in large quantities. So, so there's a there's a history of exploitation within that area, and and the continent has changed as a result of that. Could you say something about how it's changed? Um, so when we look at sort of the impacts that we're seeing. You can kind of divide those into two types. There's the impacts that have been caused by human activity on a global scale, and that would include climate change. You know, we've seen collapse of ice shelves. We've seen receding in glaciers, predominantly in the Antarctic Peninsula region. And also we've got organic pollutants brought in by atmospheric circulation. Um, we're seeing plastics being brought into the region through ocean currents. So these are all things that are happening outside 
Antarctica. But then whenever you go into Antarctica itself, we're seeing impacts caused both by the national operators, which have their research stations and do their science down there, but also by the tourism industry, which is expanding and how it has expanded quite dramatically in the last two or three decades. And on top of that, you've got the fishing industry, which does cause release of sort of plastic waste and other such things into the ocean. But what we, what the sort of impacts that we're seeing would include the introduction of non-native species, potential introduction of pathogens, which have impacts on the, the native wildlife, trampling of um, vegetation by visitors, etc., um, and, and disturbance of the wildlife that are already there, and also even the displacement of some of those uh, species through the construction of research stations, etc. And on top of that, you've got general pollution um, caused by emissions from combustion of fossil fuels, um, release of sewage into the marine environment often, and more. Oh, that's probably about it. But so there's, there's lots of various things that can go on and, and we need to kind of try and minimise those impacts as much as we possibly can. I mean, regardless of whether these are pressures coming from as a global activity or, or more local activity, mm. how, how fragile is is the sort of are the ecosystems in Antarctica? Do, do you have a do we know if they're sort of resilient to, to these sort of changes or, or or are there particular reasons why we should be concerned about the state of the of biodiversity and the, the, the environment? Antarctic environments are by their very nature, quite a bit more fragile than some of the, the ecosystems and habitats you find in other parts of the world. So if you're at some of the more remote nunataks, for example, the, the, the sum of the of the biology might be micro, a few microorganisms, a few species of, of fungi and, and, and bacteria. So it only takes a, a researcher with some mud on their boot to turn up and for that mud to get scraped off. And, and you've completely changed that community forever. And, and there's there's no going back, you know. So at, at that level, it's it's a very fragile system. But ultimately, I don't think we really understand the impacts, for example, of pollution on some of the species that we're having down there because they are not used to this sort of thing. They're already highly stressed from living in such an extreme environment. And that little bit more stress to do with pollutants or whatever might be enough to cause them to become, you know, to die or become extinct locally. Therein is the, is the dilemma, isn't it? Because the, the the very action of the scientist to understand the environment can be damaging to the environment. And so, you know, is there a choice of not knowing how fragile it is and leaving it alone or understanding how fragile it is and damaging it in the process? H- how do you as a scientist think about those tensions? Yes. Um, and that is a very, very good point. If you, th- you know, if you think about it, to, to actually go to Antarctica and do research there, it's hugely difficult and creates a huge amount of carbon dioxide emissions. So so even the act of doing any science at all leads to CO2 emissions. It also leads to impacts on the ground. I think we need to be sensitive to the fact that Antarctica is a continent that has actually been devoted to science and the freedom of scientific investigation. So that, in many respects, that's the very reason that we're there in the first place. That's the driver for a lot of the activities and the and the governance of that, that region. So in reality, it's not going to stop. But I think we can start to think about how we undertake that work, where we undertake that work, and how we perhaps set aside sites that are pristine, that are for the future, that we can be confident they are as, 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 as pristine as they possibly can be. And so that brings us to this question of the governance, the regulation of Antarctica. Mm. So how are decisions made about you know, where, where to set up scientific stations? I mean, t- t- tell me, you know, what is the status of Antarctica? So everything south of latitude 60 degrees south falls within what's called the Antarctic Treaty area. 
So the Antarctic Treaty was signed back in 1959 and entered into force in 1961, so 60 years ago. And this was actually a nuclear treaty that basically set aside Antarctica and excluded it from any weapon, nuclear weapons testing or the, or the dumping of nuclear waste. But it also set aside Antarctica as a continent for science, and it guaranteed freedom of scientific investigation there. And it also set aside some of the territorial claims that were causing tension in, in the region at the time. So that's kind of the overarching international agreement for the, for the region. When it comes to environmental um, issues, we have the Protocol on Environmental Protection to the Antarctic Treaty. So it was signed in 1991 and entered into force in 98. And it's the document that um, that famous, famously prohibits mineral resource activities in the area and also says that any activity must be undertaken after an environmental impact assessment has been performed to really minimise the impacts and understand potentially the impacts of, of all activities that are going on in there. It also sets aside Antarctica as a continent for, for peace and for science. So, you know, it's, 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 it's quite comprehensive in the extent of, of, of the coverage of the issues that it looks at. So we, we've talked about activity local to Antarctica that is and may cause environmental damage, such as tourism, fishing and scientific research. Those are the three main activities. Is that right? Yep, that's correct. You know, so so if, if I want to visit Antarctica as a tourist, how, how is that then decided whether that trip you know, should go ahead or not? So these international agreements on their own have, have no standing and it's only whenever they're introduced into uh, a nation's domestic legislation do they actually have any force. So in the UK, we've got the, the Antarctic Act of uh, 1994 and 2013, and that's what you would be prosecuted under if you were to do something um, unhelpful in Antarctica. Um, so that's the way it works. So um, we, within the British Antarctic Survey, undergo uh, or undertake environmental impact assess assessments for all activities that we do. And we run everything through the UK government, through the Foreign Commonwealth Development Office. And they're the, they're the ones that say, yes, that's fine, off you go. And if you need any permits for any particular activities, they're the people we go to. So that's the system that we have, but it very much depends on um, which nation you're going to Antarctica sort of under. So, for example, I've got a bit of an accent. I've got um, dual Irish UK citizenship. If I was to go to Antarctica as an Irish citizen, they haven't signed the Antarctic Treaty. There's nothing in Irish legislation talks about Antarctica. I guess in theory, I could go down there, start extracting minerals or, I don't know, harvesting penguins for penguin soup or something like that. And I'm not very sure how on earth I would actually be prosecuted for that because there's no legal system for that to occur. Well, that's very interesting because, you know, in our first episode, we talked about changing technologies, which mean that spaces such as Antarctica, the deep sea and space are becoming more accessible. So does that mean there's there's more demand to, to visit and exploit Antarctica and particularly then brushing up against the kind of problems that you're talking about that not all countries have have legislation that covers mm. Antarctica. So I think you need to kind of remember that within the Antarctic Treaty itself, it says if you want to participate in the governance of the region, you need to demonstrate substantial research activity there. And most Antarctic Treaty parties have interpreted that as the construction of a research station and the development of a, of a scientific program. So that inevitably leads to 
environmental impact down there. So there is a, a tension that's almost been developed by the system itself in terms of active participation in the governance versus the fact that you're going to have some sort of impact by, by taking up that role. So it is quite difficult. What kind of questions would you like to see emerge in, in a kind of more public debate about how humans interact with Antarctica? What What do you imagine would be productive kind of conversations that you'd like to see happen? If you think about it, in Antarctica, a lot of the activities that have gone under there have occurred at a a national level. So you have a a US station or a Russian station or a Chinese station. Although there is a lot of scientific cooperation, each nation makes a point of saying, this is our bit and this is the bit we're, we're, we're working from. This is our station. We don't have that same level of international cooperation in terms of infrastructure that perhaps we have in space, you know, the International Space Station, for example. And I think if we can develop a more um, integrated approach in the future, we we can reduce the human impact. You know, there's plenty of research stations which have spare beds where we could be putting scientists, but because each nation acts independently mostly, that resource is not being fully exploited. Thank you very much, Kevin. Now, turning to you, Nikita, perhaps we could begin by talking about space debris, which is a growing concern. Why is it that space debris represents a challenge that needs to be thought about? The first thing is that we need to recognise that a lot of our social economic activities actually relied on a satellite infrastructure that we currently have. So even though we can't see how satellite functions in tandem without a satellite, it is actually critical to our daily lives. Um, And I think up until recently, there is there's this sense that we kind of take the smooth functioning of the space infrastructure for granted. We, we're now coming to a stage where we see the increasing commercializations of, um, of space, of the space sector. So more private actors are coming into play. And with the new trend of introducing mega satellite constellations, meaning that instead of just putting one or two satellites up in orbit, we are going to view a constellations in the thousands to work together. So much of daily life today depends on the space infrastructure. So perhaps you could just spell out, you know, just a few examples of, of how our lives are dependent on space as we currently use it. Um, for example, uh, weather forecast and television broadcasting and also uh, satellite navigations in our mobile phone, a lot of the digital economy that use some sort of uh, geolocationing functions, like we like uh, um, satellite navigation pay, contribute partly to that. And also because satellites need to communicate to, to Earth, it relies on radio frequency transmissions. It means that if there are more satellites in orbit, it would actually put a lot of pressure on the spectrum and a lot of different technologies also use that spectrum, including our, our phones and also new technologies such as you know, uh, mega satellite constellations. So we're all sp- sharing the same radio frequency spectrum. So it is linked to the space infrastructure. And last but not least, we know that data derived from space has helped us to do climate change modeling. So it means that actually space also play a part in the global effort in combating climate change and also to ensure sustainability. And then you were talking about, you know, quite a rapid shift to deploying these mega constellation of satellites. What is that going to make possible? I think one of the major factors is that we're seeing more private 
actors becoming active in the space sector. So whereas in the past, during the Cold War, we see mainly governmental entities responsible for launching of satellites. And now increasingly we see the commercialization aspect, which drives innovation in technologies. Um, so there, are, there comes with pros and cons. So in a time when we are turning towards um, the introduction of mega satellite constellations and using kind of off-the-shelf ready components, it does kind of drive the cost of um, building satellite down, which is good because we can derive a lot of um, economic benefits from cheaper satellites. But at the same time, at a, the cost become less inhibitive to launch satellites into orbit, we need to kind of also make sure that whatever we launch would be tracked and followed and deorbit, you know, in a sustainable manner, that whatever space activities and expansion in the space economy that we are pursuing in this generation does not negatively affect our future generations in using the space, uh, the, the space infrastructure. So within that context, what are the risks that are posed by an increasing amount of space debris? So space debris would be one area of concerns. Another area of concerns would also be um, uh, frequency interference if we have more satellites up. In different orbit, there may be different main concerns. So in the low Earth orbit, which is the orbit closest to Earth, we may be more concerned about collisions if we have really an explosion of number of satellites in that orbit. If we have collisioned, then it could pose challenges to our other functioning operational satellites because it is not a car that we can stop. Um, we have to remember that in space, there is no frictions because it will just keep keep on going. So if you have a collision, whatever debris that was kind of propelled out from that kind of collision, um, we just keep on continue orbiting Earth in a, in a very high speed possibly, um, unless it was stopped by other objects. Currently, we don't have an economically accessible way of removing uh, space debris. So we want to make sure that the probability of collision with space debris or uh, between functioning satellites are kept to a minimum because there's just very little that we can do if things go wrong in space. And also, even if we do have maturing technology to actually go to space to solve some of the problem, at the moment, we're still looking at astronomical prices. So it's not like we know that there, there is a lot of pollution in the ocean and that needs a lot of resources and human effort to maybe remove. But essentially, this is still something that if we put enough resource into it, we could you know, um, address it as much as we could. Whereas when there are accidents or uh, catastrophic incidents in space, at the moment, there is very little we can do. Before we put ourselves in that kind of vulnerable positions, we want to make sure that whatever we launch in space uh, is well-coordinated, we have thought about risk, and we have put in place a mitigation measure to prevent yeah. catastrophic event. So before we sort of talk about the mitigation measures and the governance, could you just give us a sense of what the current levels of space debris are? Is it something that currently is impacting on the operation of satellites in, in orbit, or, or is it really more a prospective issue, a problem for down the road? 
one of the major challenge to communicate the threat of space debris collisions or increasingly crowded orbital environment is that it's very hard for us to verify the direct cause of malfunctioning uh, that could be attributed to space debris collision. Like I said, because we there is very little that we can do when incidents happen. So it also means that we also have very limited means to ascertain that is due to space debris or not due to space debris. But I think if um, you look at the International Space Station or in in the past, um, the space shuttle returning from space, there is a lot of kind of um, uh, dent on on space shuttle. That's because there it collides with small debris. So luckily, so far we have no catastrophic event that's directly uh, verifiably attributed to space debris collision. But it doesn't mean that is not an issue that is of concern. So. So at the moment, uh, major monetary networks on space debris tracked around just under 30,000 space objects. But according to estimations, there are around at least over 30,000 uh, space objects greater than 10 um, cm. And in the range of smaller space debris, let's say from 1 cm to 10 cm, um, we currently estimate the number to be at a 900,000. Oh. And if it's smaller than that, one millimeters to one centimeters, we are talking about million space debris. So all this debris could travel in very high speed. I think so far we can't have self lucky, but it, it, it is as with most threats, um, same with um, plastic in the ocean or climate change. In the beginning, we can't directly feel the impact. But usually when we start to feel the impact, it will be too late for action. Nikita, I mean, uh, just, just to give me as, as somebody with no real knowledge of, of space a sense, is 30,000 objects 10 centimetres or larger a big or small number? I mean, space seems huge. <laughs> it, mm -hmm. I've got no sense whether thirty thousand is is a tiny number or a medium sized number or a big number. How, how do how do we kind of assess the the significance of that number and the sort of threat it represents? So, in comparison, we can look into number of functioning satellites that we have. I think the latest number is that we have just under 4,000 satellites functioning. So that is a huge number. Um, and we are just talking about objects that are larger than 10 centimeters. If we are trying to estimate the number of um, space debris from 1 mm to 1 cm, we are talking about millions. Yeah. So if we have only less than just under 4,000 functioning satellites, and we have millions of debris, it is very small. Um, I think that number is gonna tell you that uh, space debris is not a question of if, it is a question of when. So just to recap, in terms of how, how we deal with it, how we, we mitigate this risk, you're saying that there's basically two, two ways of doing it. One is, to have technological capability to remove debris, and you say that that is becoming possible but is likely to remain very expensive. Um, and the second is just to work hard to avoid collisions that create the debris in the first place. Is, is that summarizing mm -hmm. your position correctly? Yeah, I, I think one of the most important thing we can look into from a policy perspective is to make sure that the international community 
is talking with each other and coming to a shared understanding that we need to have responsible deorbit uh, behavior. So we need to have hopefully binding, but if not, at least some form of understanding that satellite coming to the end of its life has to be moved to a, a orbit, grave, moved to a graveyard orbit or deorbit, so then it will be destroyed upon entering the atmosphere. It is a little bit difficult given the current geopolitical tensions for multilateral efforts to become to become um, binding. I think it's 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 very hard on on all topics. Second of all. On the technology front, we already have increasing interest in uh, space debris removal technology that is getting good investment. But like I said, it's going to still take some time be- before it can become commercially accessible. Nikita, we have the, the sort of in- exciting news that there's the launch of the UK-Japanese test to... to- try out a, a technology for removing space debris? Yes, I think that's very promising. And it's great in comparison to maybe uh, five, 10 years earlier, uh, where this kind of technology does not uh, attract as much attention as now. But we need to keep in mind that I think the current development of debris removal technology focuses on debris that we can track that is larger than a certain size. So if we're talking about space debris, like very minor paint um, measuring like millimeters, then I don't think those kind of technology can remove it. And because those really small um, space debris can, if travel in a very high speed, can still cause impact uh, and still cause problems. Um, So I think space debris removal technology um, can address one aspect of issue, but not completely remove um, the, the, the difficulties about increasingly crowded orbit. Um, so that comes to the second type of technology that is, for whatever reason, not as, not as hyped at the moment, which is uh, on orbit surfacing technology, which means that we try to introduce technology that allow future satellites to become repairable, refuelable, because currently the majority of satellites cannot be repaired nor refueled. So depends on which orbit you, you, you send a satellite to, their satellite would have a lifetime of maybe 10, 15, if not put it to a stretch, 20 years, and then it would become basically space debris because it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't function anymore because it, it's not, it cannot be refueled, it cannot be recharged, it, can't, it cannot be repaired. So we can also kind of start to look into changing the business model by looking into technology that allow future satellites to become more sustainable. I mean, that's that's fascinating because, yes, you've really sort of helped understand both the nature of the problem now, the kind of the, the potential dramatic increase of the problem, and then some of the solutions, which are, you know, to perhaps to remove debris that's there, to think about responsible deorbiting or decommissioning into a, what you call the graveyard orbit or deorbiting. But then, most interestingly, perhaps the idea that, you know, making more sustainable the the, the life of satellites through this sort of refueling and repair and perhaps you know multi multi functioning um, over time. So, just my last question is really about the governance. So, you're saying that this will require greater cooperation, um, greater collaboration between countries and between companies. 
what what's the kind of governance mechanism that you think will will have to operate to achieve the kinds of results you want to see? I think the most effective way to address this issue is to actually conceptualize a space resource or space debris as a sustainability issue rather than a space issue. Because essentially, it is about sharing of uh, common resources. Um, it's just like the ocean. It's just like um, the climate. It's just like the air that these are all resources that we are sharing. And if we don't coordinate or if we don't think about future generation when we use these resources, even though we can't really touch it or fill it, we have problems, you know, further down in, in, in line. So I think instead of talking about space as an isolated problem, we need to start to understand that it is about a resource sharing issues. It's about sharing global common resources. And I do understand that there may be some reluctance in conceptualizing kind of, you know, orbital slots or radio frequency as global commons. But I think the most effective way is that we need to recognize that space, te space technology help address climate change. So we need to kind of address the climate change and space debris problem in tandem, rather than thinking that this is something that we can prioritize because all this topic interplay with each other. I just want to say that's hugely helpful. Thank you very much, John, Kevin and Nikita for joining us for this discussion. And thank you for listening. Join us next week as we celebrate our podcast's first birthday and join the discussion about how research in space, the deep oceans and in Antarctica is shedding light on climate change. CSAP's Science and Policy podcast is a production of the Centre for Science and Policy at the University of Cambridge. The series is hosted by me, Rob Doubleday, and is produced by the fabulous Kate McNeil, with the excellent support of two PhD interns, Alice Millington and Anthony Lindley. You can learn more about CSAP's work by visiting us on Twitter at CSIPOL or visiting our website www.csap.cam. .ac.uk. If you have any feedback about this episode or ideas for issues we could explore in future episodes, please email us at inquiries at csap.cam.ac.uk. Thanks for listening.